Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time poor but enthusiasm rich primary teachers. This week, we've got another inspirational episode featuring James Pembroke and Richard Selfridge, and we're going to dive into the world of assessment and who better to talk to than two of the greatest minds in this field. I know you're going to absolutely love this episode, and I can't wait to share it with you. Don't forget, you can follow Tadape on YouTube, on Discord, and on Kofi, or extra bits and pieces here and there. But without further ado, let's spend some time thinking deeply about primary education. So this week, I'm delighted to be joined by James Pembroke, Richard Selfridge. It's great to have you here, James Richard. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you for inviting me. Absolutely, same here. Looking forward to it. No, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, and we always begin with our guests and numbers to get a feel for who they are. Um, I think if we start with you, Richard, and then we'll move over to you, James. Um, my first question, Richard, is years as a teacher? That's a good question. I, I, I remember when I used to say to people, yeah, I've been a teacher for a few years, 10 years, 11 years. But now I'm looking at it, I'm going, yeah, I'm up to 19 now. So I think next year is my 20th year in teaching. Nice. I was talking to Becky Allen. I think she's been in education 20 years. And we're talking about whether you get a watch or a clock once you hit that milestone. <laughs> at the very least. I think you used to. <laughs> um, first year group talk? So when I trained, I trained as an early years teacher, early years in primary. So I, I was thinking about this. That um, So the, the first year group that I taught was, was nursery. I was teaching three and four-year-olds. Uh, but my first official post was uh, was the standard. Um, let's put them into that year group so they don't mess it up. So I taught year three for a, uh, for a year, two years, I think, my first two years. Um, yep. So I started with the lovely year threes um, uh, and enjoyed it tremendously. Last year group taught? Uh, I've been doing lots of work on COVID recovery this year. So I've been teaching across Key Stage 2, um, teaching year three, four, five, six. But I did do a couple of day days with a year two group recently. And uh, again, as much as I've ended up teaching upper key stage two mainly, um, my last year group was year two. And if anybody wants to get me to do more work in year two, I love working with, um, with year one, year two, so they're great. Most important year group? It's such a difficult thing, isn't it? I still think that the early years are, are hugely important and settling children into school, particularly because one of my views about um, primary education is that as much as it's reading and writing and adding up, it's all about the socialization into school and getting children to, to appreciate what school is. So I think there's lots of different points when when it's it's hugely important. Um, but no, I think that uh, I think kind of reception year one uh, is it's such a crucial point. Um, and you see things that roll down through the years. If you teach those children and see them when they get a bit older, you can kind of see little patterns that you've picked up early on. So you can deal with those early on. So always reception year one, I think. Favorite year group? <laughs> you probably got a bit of a gather here. I do actually, to be fair, I've taught from reception up to year six. And each of them have got their own uh, their own charms. I, I mean, I love working with year sixes when they get to that point. And you can, I, I say this to people often: that the key stages uh, they make a lot of sense. There's a big change between a child going from key stage one into key stage two, key stage two into three, and I like that change that you get in year sixes. When um, my thing is the, is the Easter effect. They get to Easter and they're not little anymore. 
up to you know year four, three, four, five, those children just need you to be there. They need an adult in place. Whereas in year six, they get to the point where they don't actually need you in the room. Um, and when you see that happen, you know they're ready for secondary school. And I love watching that happen. Nice. I'm totally with you on that. Yeah. I'm, in terms of both the, the importance and the, the favorite year group, I think I'm a bit more comfortable with year six, but I do really enjoy being in, in the early years as well. And then the most difficult question normally, tweets. Or in terms of whether one should tweet or uh, what's the question about tweets? Uh, That's a good question. The number of tweets. Um, it's, it's most difficult. Oh, yeah, my number of tweets. I think I can't remember. I think I probably put about... <sighs> I'm probably about 50 to 100,000 at this point. I don't know. You're at the point where um, I'm probably the same as a lot of people with Twitter. My Twitter use has changed hugely. It was, you know, I was, I used it a great deal uh, and I use it a great deal at various points. Today, for example, I've, I've found it really useful because there's been a bunch of stuff that's been published. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm comfortably now at the point where, uh, where I'm, uh, I, I tweet regularly enough, um, but equally, as with all of us, I think with Twitter, we have this sort of interesting love-hate relationship with it. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and James, if I can move over to you, years in education. Uh, right. So my my my, uh, my history is sort of a bit, 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 bit more different, really. So I come at it from a, a sort of a data um, background. So uh, I've worked uh, previous to what I'm currently doing. I currently work for a company called Insight uh, Tracking System Company. I know we're going to talk about tracking systems. I've worked for them since 2018. Prior to that, I was a, a sort of self-employed consultant uh, for a few years. Prior to that, I worked in as a data analyst in a uh, Gloucestershire County Council school improvement team. Um, and prior to that, I worked for as a data analyst for the Learning and Skills Council, which was a, a now... Uh, defunct um, uh, government funding quango uh, focusing on like post-16 skills and FE. Um, uh, so that's kind of my my education side of things. It's very much like looking at education data. So that's probably, I don't know, like 15, 16 years of working with education data. And before that, I was doing various sort of database jobs for companies. Uh, one was a publishing company and another was a, a, an oil services company. And um, yeah, and before that, I did a, a, a PhD um, in, in geology, in granite specifically, which is a bit bizarre looking back at that now. So there you go. <laughs> Fascinating. Um, books published? Ah, right. So um, you may or may not know, but <laughs> Rich and I wrote books um uh, data proof your school which uh, came out this year so uh we we wrote that uh, together during that was our lockdown project um uh yeah so that's obviously a must read and hopefully we will uh, talk about that in a bit um i also have contributed what did i con i contributed to ray snape's um uh the head teacher's handbook so i've contributed to that uh the only other book i've written is my phd Probably so, the most difficult book to write of all. Yeah, but also your other <laughs> lockdown project, James. You can't not remember that your book in progress, which is coming. Ah, uh, right. Well, I did. Uh, yes, that did flash through my brain. But that's a completely separate thing. That is um, uh, not data related. Um, more um, a personal uh, project uh, on the uh, geological evolution of the British Isles um, and its landscapes. So, um, which uh, Richard has. Uh, been joining me on some of our little treks around uh, the country in the Lake District and in the Dales and has uh, 
of using him as a sounding board. So he's had to put up with uh, detailed kind of uh, geological descriptions of uh, landscapes and what have you. So there you go. But that's something else. Fantastic. I mean, certainly, I mean, during our chat episodes, we try and recommend books that you know around different subjects, and that, that sounds one that Neil Almond or someone in your Christopher Such might be reading and recommend to people read in the future because you know he. It's okay knowing the curriculum, but if you've got that bank beyond where the curriculum goes, then you can you're a bit you know more informed. That sounds, sounds awesome. I'm a I'm a bit of a um, I, I love books about landscape, so I'm a I'm a real um, Robert McFarlane nut. I love his books and and books of that genre, which sort of beautifully and poetically describe environment and habitat and landscape, and um, I, I I really love that sort of writing, that genre of writing. So. Um, I am sort of hopefully trying to do something along those lines, but really looking at the evolution of the, the landscape itself. So there you go. Fantastic. <laughs> um, advisor on X number of government boards and groups. Yes. Yeah, so uh, with Richard, actually, we were on it was Askell's panel, wasn't it? The primary expert um, panel assessment panel. Uh, where there was a, a, a report written with various recommendations on how assessment and accountability should go forward. I was also on the uh, DFE's reception baseline stakeholder group, which was really interesting looking at how that was developed and, and implemented. Sadly, obviously, over lockdown, those meetings stopped. But uh, I went to a whole load of meetings in um at the DFE about that so those probably are the two main ones but I've uh, been you know there's there's loads of other organizations that I've uh, yet yeah, Ofsted and um, uh, JUSCO the junior school group um, so which I'm, I'm really interested in so yeah various groups but yeah the ASCO and and um, and the stakeholder the, the reception baseline stakeholder group the two that stand out blog posts oh Hundreds, hundreds. I've been blogging since 2014, I think. I look back at my early blogs and they're terrible. You know, I realise that a good blog post is between sort of four and 800 words, you know, just not very long. You need to be able to read it in a few minutes. Um, and my early ones were way too sort of detailed. But yeah, so I started writing in it, blogs in 2014 when I still worked at the local authority, which, okay, got me into some trouble. <laughs> so yeah, tweeting and blogging don't go sort of neatly with uh, work in local government, you know, working for <laughs> local authority. Uh, so I, I, I think it was at that point where I realized that, yeah, it's probably now it's time to move on. You know, I've got opinions. Uh, this doesn't sit well with my job. So, you know, I'm just going to have to take the plunge and leave and uh, try and see if I can make this work. Um, but the, the blog that really started things off for me, I think, was I, I wrote one in, I think it was in 2015, The Progress Myth, which was... After the assessment without levels thing had been announced, the removal of levels had been announced, I think I wrote it before the Commission on Assessment Without Levels report was written. Um, and it basically just said, you can't measure progress. It's all a load of nonsense. And we should learn this and that the whole levels thing has just been an illusion for years. Uh, and I, so I wrote that and that got me invited to some conferences. And that was a, a real 
boost for me that blog post so that was that was a real standout one uh, but i've written hundreds of blog posts they're all on my website sigplus.co.uk yes i was going to say is over there house and on all house on sigplus oh yeah 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 they're all on there blog hits um i remember one i wrote called well that, that one i just mentioned uh, progress myth has been read stacks of times i don't know how many but i i remember one i read uh, i wrote called arm yourself where I basically just went through all of these various reports that came out, like the um, workload, um, the DFEs, the, the workload commission uh, reports on data management, um, the making data work report by uh, Becky Allen, um, the Ofsted handbook and the myth busting statements on the Ofsted handbook, the commission on assessment without levels, various um, uh, and even statements from uh, DFE guidance, you know, so a, a whole bunch of different reports. And I, all I did was took out from that all these really key statements that, that e even despite all these really key statements, schools were still like doing this kind of crazy stuff. And I'm saying, look, the DFE and Ofsted are saying, don't do this stuff. Here's And I wrote this blog, which was, I don't know how long it was, but it was just literally just statement after statement. After statement. I, I was just copying and pasting <laughs> stuff into this with a bit of text around it. And that got, in a very short space of time, that got something like 10,000 hits. Wow, that's massive. Which was, which was really important. I mean, it's nice for me, but it was really important that these messages, um, I mean, for example, I remember one that was um, an Ofsted update that said, Ofsted in, um, in expected progress was a DFE measure until 2015, i.e. levels of progress. So um, expected progress is a DFE measure until 2015. Ofsted inspectors must not um, use this term when referring to the progress of current pupils. They banned themselves from using the phrase expected progress. And yet every single report being delivered to governors or every conversation taking place between head teachers and and teachers and governors and all these different and local authority advisors and all that was all around so what percent of children made expected progress what even is it i don't know i don't know what it is but tell me how many children have done it you know you can't define it and so that was really important Gofster, Gofster saying, yeah we don't even know what expected progress is so we're not even going to talk about it and even after they said that still schools and they're still doing it now yeah. that was yeah so that was a that was a good blog post i mean i started in 2008 and so i was you know i had been in with the tracking from the old style levels for long enough and then this yeah. watershed moment and then we just sort of tried to recreate what we've done in the past yeah. in a different way yeah. um yeah. it doesn't feel like it's you know that might still be happening but i'm sure we'll, we'll oh, definitely it's, it's definitely still happening and it's yeah it's quite quite painful i'm sure we'll we'll dive deeper <laughs> into that in a minute and number of tweets do you know I I, I I I don't I don't know how do you find out if you go to your profile um on yeah. Twitter and you start to scroll up through your tweets the number at the top appears oh, look at that. 68,000 it says here 68,000 so there we go That's I mean the tweets I reckon <laughs> This is the fifth season, um, and I ask everybody how many tweets they've done, and I reckon maybe two or three came preferred with the, <laughs> with the number of tweets. It's like the, the hidden feature on Twitter. It. It's not very in intuitive. It just sort of appears. <laughs> and why would you look through your own tweets unless you were going back to delete them and stuff? <laughs> 
Good so Richard, you're a primary teacher, data consultant and author. Tell us about your journey and how you got here. Yeah, so I, so I started teaching in 2003. Um, I started teaching in London. Uh, I trained in London uh, um, and started teaching there. Um, and then I moved back up to, I moved up to Yorkshire, which is where I'm now in 2010. Um, and so I, I had that sort of typical early years of teaching. You go into a teacher teaching, assuming various things about what you're going to be there for. And then being told by schools or by the system effectively, you just kind of learn this is what actually we're doing in teaching. So for, I spent you know five or six years just, okay, so what am I doing? Learning how to teach. And then by 2012, 13, um, I was you know almost 10 years in and I had various opinions about what was happening in schools and so on at that time, because there was quite a lot of discussion. Again, for those people who are relatively new to, to uh, education, they'll probably be surprised at, at this, that explosion of discussion in sort of post 2010, partly because it was the new government that came in. Michael Gove came in. He was very controversial and lots of us in schools were, didn't really understand what he was trying to do. Anyway, so I, I got very interested in, in, in looking at what's happening in, in education, but particularly I was interested because I went over to, I went over to France for a, for a short visit to go and look at some schools in France and schools in France are extraordinary or certainly were at the time very you know in, in lots of ways they're completely different from schools in England in my experience and I've only ever taught in England um, and so I had a good look to say well why why you know why are things different um, so I did lots of things with that um, uh, and I could bore you to death why, with why they're different but after that I then started writing some stuff because I was quite annoyed um, about things so I started writing a blog anonymously and there were quite a few anonymous blogs at the time so I wrote a blog called um, Icing on the Cake which still exists and still got lots of stuff on it um, because my general view is that schools are icing on the cake the cake is is the child and the child's friends and lots of other things and what we do is we add some icing and uh, and I, I use various lines about you know that icing should be glittering and should be amazing and often it wasn't it was just gruel you know particularly when you're teaching off key stage two which I was doing at that point and you were just basically into this sort of meat grinder just to get results um so I wrote about a number of things because I have you know um various views about the way which we educate and what we do but I ended up doing lots of work on um just saying what on earth is raised online why are people making these assumptions about it um partly because my background is I, I did a maths degree maths and statistics degree so people would talk about maths and statistics in a way where I was thinking this just that's not how statisticians think that's not how you should be using these numbers so I wrote various bits and a bit like James where, where you write a post um, a blog post and people respond to it I said I gave Raise Online a good kicking because it needed one um, it was really distorting things and then from then I've just ended up doing lots and lots more work on, on data eventually somebody asked me to write a book so I wrote a book called um, uh, Data Busting for Schools um, which is kind of where the data busting came, thing came from. And it was just this idea of, you know, just use the numbers sensibly. You know, assessment is, is really useful, but, um, but just what, a lot of things that were happening, particularly at that time um, in 2014-15, um, were, were debatable, That's, which is where James and I came into each other's orbit. And then we've done lots of stuff working since then. So now um, I work and I do various things, um, working with schools, working with organizations, um, but I still do some teaching as well. I usually work, teach two or three days a week because um, I really enjoy teaching. I love teaching. Um, and it's really useful to do that, just kind of keep a connection with what's actually happening in the class and in schools, as well as supporting schools on, the, on that wider stuff. And then I do lots of other stuff to do with um, special educational needs. Um, and also partly because I, I, over 20 years of teaching, I've come to realize that schools are pretty good. We do a pretty good job. Children make really 
good development through schools. British, in particular, English system is pretty good. Um, but the children who you really do need support are the children who find school difficult for whatever reason, and that we should focus on those. Some of that is special educational needs, but there are other reasons why children might find school difficult. And that actually what we need to do is to work out which children need support and support them effectively. So that's kind of where I've, I've got to. Awesome. It's great that you've managed to keep yourself in, in touch with the classrooms. I think that's the most important thing, isn't it? You know, but also you've got the chance to help people with them, um, you know, a subject that very few know much about. And you're talking about um, statistical analysis. You know, it's it's not in the head teacher wheelhouse, is it? Well, that's my observation. Again, you know, for those of us who work in primary education, um, a huge number of people haven't really studied any maths since they were, you know, 16. Uh, it's unusual to find anybody who's done maths beyond 16 to any degree, and certainly not much statistics. Um, so when somebody comes into you and says, oh, this is statistically significant, you, that you, you, your interpretation of that is is of somebody who doesn't really understand the statistics statistics which is fine but i say i've written a couple of books and lots of blogs about how to understand and interpret the statistics and that's one of the things which james and i do a lot of to say to people okay you know it's fine not to really understand this stuff but here's some information here's some basic things you should know and now you know that how do you how you can interpret what you've got yeah it's crucial isn't it yeah because i mean I made a decision a long time ago never to become a head teacher because of the, so many of the extra things that aren't teaching and learning and pedagogy and stuff like that there, you know, the, the reason you become a teacher in the first place. So, yes, uh, my hat's off to anybody who successfully manages to be a head teacher because you know, I certainly. I think it's one of the hardest jobs in the world. I say this often, you know, the, the skill set that's required to be an effective or really good head teacher is very unusual. I've met very, very good head teachers, but it's it's unusual when you meet them. I've worked for a few, um, um, with a few now, um, but because it's such a it's such a skill it's such a broad skill set that you need you need to be able to talk to the children, to the parents, to you know to governors, to uh, you need to be able to do lots of things very, very well. James, you're a data analyst, author, and currently fighting the good fight against zombie levels and insight. Tell us about your journey and how you got here. And obviously, we covered a bit in the in the number section. Yeah, sure. So, as I said, I I um way back in the dim and distant uh, past, I, I studied geology. And then I, I moved away from that when I, uh, the first job I did was more of a sort of a database um, uh, job working for a, one of these oil services companies. And I kind of realized at that point, I didn't want to work in that industry. You know, that was not for me. So I uh, sort of drifted into other sort of data analytical jobs um, and eventually ended up in an education focus one uh, and the first this first one was as, as I said working for the learning and skills council which was dealing with post-16 um, funding and that at that time <laughs> every regional office uh, so I was in the Gloucester office and every local office so every, every month would get these these cds of data would just be delivered in the post and then they would just sit on someone's desk and no one ever did anything with them so all this data on all the different courses that were being done on attendance retention um funding all sorts of stuff and it just sat on these cds and i remember there was this manager and he had this stack of cds on his and every every month this cd would get one cd this stack would get one cd higher you know and no one ever did anything so I thought I will build a database. So I, I built this data. I put all this data into this database. And then I set about sort of building some queries and we had SPSS and I used SPSS to query, which is an absolute nightmare program. And I don't 
ever intend to go back to it. Um, and then I realized that we had a like a network, we not not a, an intranet, you know. So I, I put this this database onto this uh intranet with a sort of a nice front end, and I wrote a load of SPSS queries that could query this. So people could just let, literally just run this bit of code and it would create some, it would churn out the data that they wanted. And then I learned how to use crystal reports. So we could use crystal reports to interrogate and produce a nice, like one or two page, you know, nicely formatted. And I put this all out there and then other um, offices started to use this uh, database that I built. So rather than using the, the, the sort of central offices offer, offer, which was a bit clunky and not really, they started to use mine, which was really nice. Uh, and then I said, I went to work for a, a local authority um, doing sort of similar stuff really. Uh, but um, Richard just mentioned Ray's and, and I, I uh, entered the local authority when, when Ray's was in like full swing, you know, and Ray's at that point, a, a Ray's report for, for primary schools was um, over a hundred pages long. So hundred, we were doing primary and secondary and uh, 103 pages long, I think when it was at its maximum. And I remember just, the, the journey, mentioned the, the, the journey uh, was going from thinking this is obviously really important and informative stuff. At, 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 and then sort of a, a three years later, realizing this is all a load of garbage. And 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 it's the same with like uh, sort of the, the, the tracking, the internal approaches schools were taking. So the levels measures that the, the progress measures thinking. I, I, I refer to this quite often that um, one of my first tasks was a, a, a senior advisor came to see me and says, hey, you're the new data guy. Um, can you build me? And then he listed what he wanted. And he basically described a tracking system. He wanted me to build him a tracking system and in Excel. So he wanted this tracking system in Excel. And he described what, what happened. And he basically said, um, over key stage two, children make two levels of progress, uh, two whole levels of progress. And for example, a 2B, that's 15 points. And then a two and a 4B is, is, is 27 points. And so therefore the difference between 15 and 27 is 12. So 12 points over key stage two, that's three points per year. That's one point per term. So all children need to make one point per term. Can you have a spreadsheet? Can you have a tracking system that um, counts up how many steps they've made and, and basically goes green or purple or red or orange or whatever, according to how many, and the expected is three, one per term, three per year, and four, because obviously four is higher than three, <laughs> four is more than expected. So we want everyone to make three and then a certain percentage to make four. And I just remember at the time thinking, oh yeah, yeah, right. Well, I just, of course, I didn't question it. I think, yeah, 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 I can build this. And I was quite excited about having a little academic project to work on, you know, so I build this. And now I just look back at just horror. And this went out to some schools, you know, so some schools were using this. And I just think, oh my God, it's just awful. So I went from thinking, this is all raised online. Um, that's all really important and tells us something really important. Uh, these tracking systems and points, children make one point per term and three points per year. Obviously that's true to going to, to getting to this point. Thinking, this is all mad. This is absolute madness. This is garbage. And it's at that point thing. Yeah, it's time to, and that's where I started to blog about things. And I, the first blog I wrote was on, the narrowing the gap measures. So I wrote this really vitriolic, angry. Richard mentioned that like, he was angry. I was also angry. Um, and, and it was the, the gap measures. So it was so simplistic that you could easily 
and everyone was expected to close the gap between the most disadvantaged and, and, and other children. And obviously we aim to do that, but the measures that were put in place, what is this? So I wrote this blog about it, uh, a massive rant about it. And I put that out there and I was obviously still employed at the time. And uh, that got me in some trouble. And I went away and I went on holiday and I came back and thought, yeah, well, whilst I was on holiday, I thought I've got to go. I've got to leave. So I came back and I handed my notes in. And um, and then I set out on my own where I could write and tweet whatever I liked. So there you go. That's how I ended up here. I mean, I'm having flashbacks as you speak. I mean, it sounds like you designed the program that I started using in 2008. You know, I remember we had to put in every every six weeks we'd put in this data. <laughs> well, there, there are commercial systems that still exist that whose roots are back then. And they started life as spreadsheets. Like mine did, mine never re um, reached that commercial scale. It was just a handful of schools in Gloucestershire that were using it. And thankfully that died a death quite quickly. Um, you know, I, 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 I what's, uh, what's, what's the, is it sunk cost fallacy? Yep, the sunk cost that, fallacy. That's the thing, isn't it? Where you invest a lot of time in things and then you just, you, you just don't want to let it go. You know, you keep piling more and more into it. So I think uh, you can be quite vain about these things, but it's important that you go, no, this is nonsense. Even though I've piled a lot of effort into this, I have to admit that this has to die. <laughs> <laughs> we need to bury this now. It yeah. needs to die. So yeah, let it go. Let it go. Um, yeah, no, I'm not going to start singing that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean, like the flashback. So, so I think back and go in horror. Oh God. So I, yeah. I think one of the questions that we, we're going to talk a, minute, a bit about about tracking systems, and there are there is a purpose to tracking systems. Um, don't call them tracking systems as a start, but there is a purpose to them, and they can be very useful. But we need to completely refocus them. I see. I'm not looking forward to asking that question. I mean, 2000. Whenever the conversation started to shift, 2014. That was probably around about the time that I was starting to get confident enough in my own practice because you come in NQT 2008. You just think you're doing things wrong, you know, so you've, you've no idea that, um, you know, because in Ireland, I don't think we had the same level of detail in our track in the tracking of pupils. You basically had the program of study and you taught the program of study and yeah. it was all it was all OK. And then it came over and thought, OK, well, this is something I need to get better at. And then I think it was Jack Marwood maybe wrote in David Dow's What If Everything You Knew About Education Was Wrong? And that was the first time I've seen someone write about um, assessment in a way that is uh, that's my alter ego, Kieran. So I started off anonymously, as I said, um, uh, writing icing on the cake as icing no on the cake. And nobody knew who I was. And then somebody said, basically, who are you? We need to know who you are. So I thought, well, I'm not telling you who I am because it was quite useful to be anonymous, a bit like James was saying, because, uh, you know, you want to uh, basically, I didn't, I kind of knew I had to be responsible for my opinions, but I wanted, to, I didn't want my school to be associated with any of this at all. So, uh, so I was going to be Peter Marwood, who is the I character from Withdale and I, as I'll always bore people with if you've ever watched Withdale and I. But Peter Marwood wasn't available as a Yahoo email address. So I chose Jack Marwood. So I am, I reveal myself as Jack Marwood. So, so, and then I, and then I kept being asked to do stuff so I did it and it was quite fun I had had my secret pseudonym name so I was Jack Marwood for about three or four years and you'll have read that in here where I basically again I'm not sure that the piece which I wrote for David here sorry David is as good as it should have been it was okay David's book turned out to be a load better than I was the than than well that I anticipated and he'd written it in a very different way his earlier books have been kind of compilations of blogs so I kind of compliance of blogs but this book is really good and again I'm going to push it again excellent so you read Jack Marwood when I was Jack Marwood 
Yes, yeah. yeah. I mean, th that's got me into edgy Twitter and that sort of sphere. I, mean, I remember seeing an advertisement or someone talking about that chapter and then I bought David's book and then I thought, oh my goodness. And then I read it again and I thought, and, I thought, and then piece by piece started getting, a, you know, you could see who, who to follow in the, in the edgy Twitter sphere who was having the sort of sensible conversations and things. Um, so that was a game changer. Um, Neil Almond's got my book. I was actually going to check that chapter out beforehand to see if there's anything in it that was because it's been a while since I last read it. Um, but he had never read the book at all. I thought, Neil, you've got to read this book. And, you know, all the things you've been talking about for a long time are, are in here. And that's amazing. Jack, Jack Marley, was, uh, he was a troublemaker. He was a disruptor. <laughs> and I got, I kid you not, I got warned about him. I got warned about Jack Marwood. He's associated with that Jack Marwood. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I got warned about him. And um, I, at that point, I'm thinking, I've got to get to know this guy. <laughs> Been warned about him. He exactly. must be you know, important. There's a, um, a, a great book by um, Becky Allen, uh, Ben White, um, uh, Matt Evans, which they wrote the next book, uh, Big Thing in um, School Improvement, which we've talked about. And they're quite good about it. They put their finger on, the, on, on these waves that came through education. They talk about the differentiation wave in the 2000s. Now, when I started teaching, that was a big thing. You probably got the back end of that. So when you came up, if you came up to England that time, then, then you've got the idea that we're going to differentiate three different levels and all this kind of stuff. And then the, the 2010s, their view is that, that was the data wave that came through. And that's the one which you'll, you'll have, again, just experienced where you just think people will start saying things and doing things and and uh, as we know schools tend to flow as a they, they tend to work as a pack so so they're all kind of following each other nobody wants to be too too out there so they all just kind of went through and just suddenly people would start saying things about data that again it sounds like you and i suspect a lot of us were just saying that doesn't fit with what i understand about teaching about children about assessment even um you know like J jamie was saying you know you i'm suddenly turning this level into a number that then i'm going to compare it uh, so much of it it just be, it be developed a life of its own, which is why it was good that when people began to, because when, when Jamie and I first started saying, hmm, don't sure, not sure this is sensible, people just didn't want to hear that message. They, they knew that there was something unusual or there's something odd, but, but they, they said, but we, we have to do what we're doing, particularly because Ofsted were doing what they were doing at the time. Anyway, so things changed a lot at that time, certainly in the mid um, 2010s. Yeah, I mean, we, we don't like change in schools. I mean, there's definitely a reluctance to move away from levels. But I think I might allude to that in one of the, in the questions. In 2014, national curriculum levels were removed. And, you know, I think we were given two years notice as well, weren't we? Um, and I think it was an attempt to nudge schools towards more efficient practices. You know, I think, you know, you talk about Michael Gove, I think his plan was to remove lots of stuff and see what the chaos creates. You know, I'm not saying either for or against that, but that seemed to be where he was going. And then I think Daisy Christopher wrote Making Good Progress around about 2015-16 about what those practices might look like. But in 2022, it doesn't feel like the nudge has taken us far enough. Why do you think ineffective practices are so ingrained in our schools and how they how they operate? I'll start with that one just to say, again, I think you're right that schools don't particularly like change because schools are not ultimately in charge of their own destiny because somebody's going to come in and check what they're doing. And so Ofsted does have a big impact. So the, Ofsted um, have, a, have an impact there. And we can't get away from that. The DfE also has an impact as well. So there's a bit of that going where schools worry about things. And again, that has been an issue. Uh, the DfE, to be fair to them, have done quite a bit of work on their workload reports, which they did again in the mid-2010s. Um, um, where they began to say, actually, you know, we're clearly um, affecting what's happening in schools. And a, a lot of that information is the DFB got, they got through bloggers like Jamie and I and others um, saying these things. I think one of the issues then is that education has just not been a political issue 
for the last five years, really. Other, I mean, there's been certain aspects of, um, of education trying to assess during the pandemic being one of them. But at GCSE at A-level, at primary, it hasn't been that much of a big issue. So, so the, there's been less of a move centrally, I think, to, to try and affect schools. So schools have largely been left to themselves. They're trying to be, figure out ways to move forward. Um, but then they've also then had, um, they've been overtaken by the next wave in education, which is the curriculum wave, which is going through at the moment where everybody's worrying about curriculum. So they're sort of, a lot of schools are sort of doing things in assessment that they think they should be doing, but they're not quite sure. Um, so therefore, things haven't changed that quickly. That said, a number of things have changed. You know, levels have moved on, but we still have tracking systems that basically have recreated levels and, and the way which levels work. Schools are using standardised assessments more, but maybe not as much as they might do. So there's a bit of limbo, which again, <laughs> that's the reason why Jamie and I sat down and said, actually, you know, I, so I'd written data busting for schools, which gave raise and statistical um, a significance uh, as used in raise a good kicking. We kind of said, actually, what schools, they just want to know what they should do, which is why we wrote data proof your school to say, you know, this is, these are the issues you need to have a look at. This is the issue with teacher assessment. These are the things which you need to know about various other things. This is what you need to do to move forward. So I think schools are still in that position where they're not quite sure what to do. Um, and other things are taking precedence. So they're still kind of doing things that they were doing because that's what we were doing before. That's my take at the moment. Jamie, what's yours? Well, I think it's a combination of inertia and fear. Um, I think that there's a reluctance to change until you reach that, that point, that, that kind of tipping point where everyone changes, you know, or, or enough, enough have done it. So, so I think we are kind of getting there now, but what I really worry about we talk about this in the book. There are various pressures. There are external pressures. There are perceived external pressures. There's still this belief that well, Ofsted are going to. I still hear head teachers go, "Well, okay, when I have meetings, uh, you know, with, with, with head teachers, and they start talking about their data and preparing for Ofsted, and they said, but Ofsted aren't going to look at your internal data. They're not. They're not going to look at it. I've not spoken to a single head teacher of a school uh, that has been inspected that said, oh yeah, they looked at our data. They've said it. They 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 it's there I mean, it's it, it's like that, that blog post that i said i wrote arm yourself if you know all this stuff and you go why are you asking me for this when it actually says in your guidance that you will not ask for this and you go oh okay your own guidance so they're not asking for this data but i think there's um in some cases schools go oh yeah they say that but you know so there's a bit of um suspicion and disbelief cynicism around that but there's a lot of, yeah there's a lot of fear there's a fear um, and, and sadly, data, the focus of data in schools is still very much on, in many cases, on, on, on accountability. It's a tool for accountability rather than a tool for teaching and learning. But it should be the latter. And then the former takes care of itself. You know, what you don't want is data that becomes distorted to give a nice view of your school. But I think that's the risk because that's the focus. The, it needs to prove something to my governors. It needs to prove something to my LA advisor. It needs to prove something to the Ofsted inspector or to the MAT CEO or whoever it is. It needs to prove something to them. And then everything just gets distorted out of shape. So there's no point collecting it in the first place. There's a lot of fear. Um, and particularly those schools that are in vulnerable situations. The craziest conversations I have are with those head teachers that say, yeah, I know that what I'm doing is nonsense. I know it's garbage, but I have to do it because you think you're essentially saying that you can't start to do things right until you are 
no longer RI in your goods. So only good schools. I remember a head teacher saying this to me once. So she was told by their advisor, their LA advisor said, don't, I'm quoting, don't start getting any highfalutin ideas about assessment. Only good schools can do what they like. So you are not a good school. You're an RI school. So you're going to have to do one time. And that's basically track everything that moves, record data every few weeks, make sure the numbers always go up, make sure they make X whatever points per year or whatever it is. This is what you're going to have to do. And you go, yeah, I know it's garbage, but this is what I have to do. And when we're a good school, then we can start to get things right. You go, what? One of the other issues is that, uh, you know, for a lot of school leaders, you've been in education for some time. So you've probably been in education for, you know, um, 10 years or so, 10 years plus, let's say, you know, if you're going to be a head teacher, um, one would hope, you know, some head teachers obviously make it earlier than that, but you've got to be in education for a while. And therefore, you're quite used to these practices that were very embedded in the 2000s, in the early two, um, 2010s. And it's and it's hard to let go of those things, unless you're one of those head teachers who has been able to, you know, really think about things that you've, you know, and, and you've been able to just have the courage to say, I am going to do what I believe to be right, rather than what I believe, you know, I'm just going to do what I've always done. So I think there's a bit of that as well. So there, so therefore, I do think that there is, there's a lot of potential in this next 10 years, because mm -hmm. as head teachers, you know, new set of head teachers come through, older head teachers are, are, are just more, just get moving with, with the way things have changed. So I think we'll see how that changes. But there's quite a bit of inertia there um, in schools. Again, you also tend to find that for a lot of teachers who've been around for a long while, you know, we do, Jamie and I do a lot of uh, training with teachers in the schools and, um, uh, and organizations. And, you know, you ask people, you know, how much training have you had on assessing pupils? And if you came into the profession, um, you know, five plus years ago, the answer is not a, not a lot. You know, there wasn't a great deal. Recent trainees have had more. And it's one of the things that the, Carter review of initial teacher training um, picked up on it says that you know there's so many things you need to learn when you're learning to teach um, that assessment is not seen hasn't been seen as particularly high so a lot of people come in not really knowing how to assess so again there's a, there's a lot of work to be done there just to help people understand you know the basics of assessment what you know the, the benefits of it but also the, the potential drawbacks um, and how you should move sensibly forward so we we talk a lot about standardized tests you know um our events are, you know, training sessions, talk a lot about, and we did in the book as well. The standardized tests are great. They have a purpose. Um, but I, I think that schools possibly expect too much of them, maybe overly reliant on them, think that it's telling them something that it isn't. Um, and that's a risk. So this is about like understanding like the purpose of the assessment, what it can and can't do. Um, but there's maybe been a knee-jerk reaction and I think that's accelerated in the last uh, couple of years with the COVID lockdowns. This, uh, we need something that's more reliable. We need a standardized test. What's everyone else doing? Oh, they're doing these this series test. Let's just get those then. We'll just get those in and we'll use those. Um, and it's even like a, a, a lack of understanding on what a standardized score is. We talk a lot about the difference in standardized scores and these key stage two scaled scores, you know, that there are similarities in the numbers, but they actually are fundamentally different. So, uh, understanding those assessments is, is vital um and that that's that's still an area of concern yeah i think it, it, it does take a lot of bravery particularly when you're in the, in the sort of struggling school or a so-called struggling school to be to put your neck against the or run against the tide sort of and yeah i mean i have something similar whenever i talk to teachers about textbooks and um, 
and head teachers will have come up, you know, differentiating three to six different ways. It worked for them. So, you know, why why should everyone be doing the same thing at the same time? So that whenever you were mentioned there, um, Richard, I can see a lot of parallels with the conversations I'm trying to have with head teachers as well. So yeah, it make, makes a whole lot of sense. Um, yeah, but I think the the most recent Ofsted framework, like you see, you go back to the very start of the, the response, hasn't really had a chance to have a full cycle. Sure. You know, because it was 2018, 2019-ish. And then very soon in that year, you know, the schools were partially closed. Um, and then it's been pretty disrupted since then. You know, schools have been inspected. But, you know, mm -hmm. so fingers crossed, they're true to their word. You know, in the inspections I've seen, they have been, like you said, no one's been asked for data. You know, and I think once other head teachers see that happening, they're all, okay, so that, that's a real thing. And so, yeah, fingers crossed. They, they became a risk to the integrity of assessment data. And they recognized that. They realized that the, the systems, the data that they were being confronted with when they went to schools, one, were overly complicated, two, were generally meaningless, and, 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 and were being, that, and the data was being produced pretty much solely just to keep them happy or keep various external audiences happy and, you know, advisors and governors and that it wasn't really about what it should be about. And so by removing themselves from that seemed like a bit of a nuclear option. And, and some people, I, I can understand this. Some people are a bit annoyed about it because if you've invested quite heavily in, in standardized tests, that should prove something, but then there's always that risk that you, you children spend too much time doing tests that you spend too much time preparing those children, not just for key stage two SATs, but they're for their autumn NFER test, you know, whatever, that's, that's mad. Um, so we, we the accountability relies on accurate data, but accountability distorts the very data that it relies on. So there can be a bit of a catch 22 there. And, and we, we need to reduce the risk of distortion as much as we possibly can. Otherwise, there's no point in collecting data. That's beautiful. I think that if, if people only hear one 30 second clip, it has to be that bit there, doesn't it? I think. <laughs> like the sound bite. <laughs> <laughs> um, feeds really went into my next question, because I think, you know, an over-reliance or over-eagerness to utilize teacher assessment. Um, Appears one of the most prevalent practices, and I think, you know, in my opinion, it's probably best avoided. You know, how would you or do you approach teacher assessment, and does it have any saving graces that I might be overlooking? You know, so I'm willing to accept that I might not have the whole picture. I'm going to jump in because again, so as a teacher, again, it's my strong view. Again, my my trip to France was so useful because it, it sent me off on lots of different things, but. Um, I was fascinated in, in 2012 looking at a primary education, a primary um, classroom in France where um, there was almost no assessment happening at all. This is the curriculum. We're going to teach you the curriculum. I've taught you the lesson. And if you haven't learned it, well, that's your fault or your problem. It's not mine. I'm not assessing you. Whereas in you know the English system, um, and it's probably worth speaking about the English system, you can't teach in England without assessment. I say this often. You can't teach without assessment. You have to be spending your time thinking, which of these pupils do I think understand this? Don't, where are my pupils? You know, you're spending that all the time you're assessing. But the issue then is how much of that assessment you're doing is, is actually going to be recorded anywhere? 
And I talk about this, you've got to think about it. So you're gathering information, you're collating it, you're analyzing it, and then you're hopefully doing something with it. A load of information is being gathered by teachers, but it isn't being collated. It shouldn't need to be collated. As a teacher, particularly as a primary school teacher, you've got your class 20 to 30 children, and you need to know those pupils. So you need to get them. So therefore assessment, teacher assessment is vital. But as we know from the work that Daisy Christodoulou's um, um, done and others, um, you're probably wrong. You don't know where you're wrong, but you're probably wrong. So what you need is some independent way of checking to say, well, you know, how do I see? So because again, the assumption as we often say, um, if pupils are attentive and quiet and focused uh, and always putting their hands up, you tend to assume that they're learning stuff and they know more than they actually do. And pupils who are annoying and, and loud and, and, and distracted, you assume have learned less. Whereas, so, so standardized assessments of some kind, some kind of a standardized assessment that allows you to take your biases or minimize your biases as much as possible are really useful. But, but it, I don't think that it's possible to teach in England without some kind of assessment. The question then is, because when we talk about these things, again, it, the language is important because teacher assessment is fine. Teacher assessment that requires you to then to collate that information in some way that then becomes a teacher assessment system. That's the problem that we're talking about here. So again, so what you're looking to do is to try and, and minimize that assessment. And the thing which um, Jamie and I have come to the view of is, as a teacher, you need to know which of these pupils are fine, are just getting on with things. Do we think are, you know, we teach them, we give them the opportunities to learn, and as far as we can see, they're learning the things which we want them to learn. Um, and which pupils are not fine, which people struggle, find this difficult, aren't concentrating, aren't whatever. And that's your real filter that you need, you need, you need a sense of which people are not doing okay, um, or just not fine, and who's who's fine. And as, if your teacher assessment works that way, so you as a teacher know, okay, of these children, these ones I think are okay at the moment, and these ones maybe less so. And I think if you can capture that information simply, and a simple binary fine, not fine is, is okay, but you can differentiate that a little bit more because we know a little bit more about the people who do struggle. Um, and then the other thing which we talk about is then using that over time. So you're not looking, at, you need to get away from the whole snapshot idea of data. That data is the last time I had a quick look at them, this is what I saw. And as I've said, and I'll say many times, it, the most frustrating thing working in English schools is when you inherit a new class and you're told, here's the data for your class, and that data is the last assessment that was done. And as that makes no sense. In year four or five, that makes no sense. You should have five years worth of data by this point. Even in year two, you should have two and a bit years of data. You know, the whole idea that you in year two should be told this is what they got the last assessment is crazy. So teacher assessment is really useful um, as a as a broad rough filters to where you think you are and it makes even more sense if you can capture it quickly and easily and build picture over time so that's broadly where where um i say and these, these are things which Jamie and i've talked about at length that mm. teacher assessment is useful that way i think my focus on this is very much on uh the statutory assessment side of things uh i've done a talk recently on this i did one at um research ed and we, i also include it in our data busters days as well that if you if you look at secondary schools there are two statutory assessments well there's what there's gcse's and there's a levels gcse's obviously statutory assessment but there's nothing in between key stage two and gcse then you look at primary schools and we have the now we have the reception baseline the foundation stage profile phonics in year one potentially phonics again in year two key stage one assessments in year two which which involve both a test and a teacher assessment in reading writing maths and science 
now we have a multiplication check in year four, and then we have a suite of tests, obviously, at, at the end of year six, and the teacher assessment in writing and science. So there's a vast amount of assessment going on, um, and it is uh, heavily reliant on teacher assessment. Um, and you don't have to look that far to find evidence that that assessment is dubious. If you look at, we all love the phonics, distribu the distribution of phonics scores. We all love that cliff edge, that bonkers graph, right? It's just like no one gets zero to 30, relatively speaking. You know, the, the, the axis is what, you know, thousands of children getting each of the marks. And then there's that little dip, isn't there? Hardly anyone gets between zero and 30. And even fewer get like 31. Like, no, who get 31? It's nuts. Like it's a dip at 31. And then boom. <clears throat> it just, it's like a takeoff, you know, it's just like a rocket going off at 32. Um, now, foundation stage profile has changed a bit because, or it changed significantly actually, because, oh, he used the word significant. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> so, right. It's, it's yes, every word. word significant. Statistical significance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so we used to assess children as emerging, expected, or exceeding in those 17 goals. And then there was a graph buried in the uh, annual report which shows the total point scores distribution for the foundation stage profile. And if you got the, the lowest score, you can get 17, 17 times one, 17 times emerging. The highest score you can get is uh, 51. Uh, 17 times exceedings three but everyone just gets everyone's it's goldilocks isn't it it's just right everyone gets uh, is expected so you you end up like this this bar graph that shows like no one getting any of these and there's this huge great spike at 34 and then like no one at the other end so there is weird things like that we know that there's a big discrepancy between key stage one outcomes in all through primary schools and infant schools the finger of blame is often pointed at infant schools for overinflating their key stage one results, but that's not necessarily fair. It may be fair in some cases, but not across the board. We know that there is a problem with uh, all through primary schools who look at their key stage one result and uh, their key stage one and think, is this a result or is this a baseline for our progress? And overwhelmingly, it's a baseline for progress because the progress scores at key stage two are more critical than the than the, the attainment results at key stage one. So you are more likely to think, oh, let's not have too many children achieving greater depth. We're not allowed. It's like level level three. I remember head teachers that were quite brazen about this in network meetings, local authority meetings, and go, we don't do level three at key stage one anymore. We don't do it. Two A is our maximum. Why would we give level three? No one's going to get three levels of progress. So we're not doing it. Right. So they would be quite open about it. Um, and we still have that problem now. So we know there are problems with foundation stage. It didn't used to be the case, but what, what started to happen was people started to, I say people, I mean Ofsted, I mean the DFE, I mean LA advisors, I mean, you know, there are others, no doubt, would start to look at the results at foundation stage and the results at key stage one and start to try and make links. So they would say, well, what percentage of children that exceeded the early learning goal in reading went on to achieve greater depth in reading at key stage one? You go, what are you doing? What are you doing? So then suddenly you see a dip in the percentage of children exceeding the early learning goals. In the next year, you see the data start to bend and it bends beyond its elastic limit and then it snaps. And that's what happens. It snaps. I think phonics is highly dubious. The foundation stage profile results are highly dubious. Q 
Key stage one results in many schools are highly dubious. I don't know what will happen with multiplication check. It's it's uh, it's much more difficult because that's an online, you know, I suppose it's difficult. And they've got six seconds to get the result in, but not so easy to manipulate, obviously. And then there are cases of maladministration at key stage two every year. You know, schools are found out for that. Um, and, and can you be surprised? Uh, and we know, by the way, on the subject of teacher assessment, writing at key stage two was until this year the highest of the, all the subjects. So, OK, let's put that except science. What, what is going on with that? Like, so the difference between the, the science sampling tests and the percentage achieving expected standards, it's like a hardly any. It was a very small percentage. It's, it's less than half, I think. I don't know what the latest results are, but it's a small, uh, small proportion. And then it's like 80 odd percent of children achieve it based on the teacher assessment. But in terms of writing, there is a big difference between the percentage of children achieving the expected standard in writing and the, and the percentage achieving the expected standard in reading, which is based on a test. And for years this was going on. And we all knew this was like really iffy. But it just carried on year after year. The writing was the higher of the the highest of the subjects. And FFT Data Lab did a really good paper on that when the results first came out in 2016. They looked at local authority. They plotted at local authority level the percentage of children achieving expected standards in writing against those achieving expected standards in reading. And they identified some local authorities that had much higher writing results compared to reading and probably had quite lenient um, moderation regimes. And those that were the opposite, that probably had really harsh regimes. And the craziest thing is, if you're in a mat, you can choose with which local authority you have your moderation arrangements. So you can just go, well, we had a bad experience there. Let's go to this LA instead and we'll be moderated by them in future. So there are massive problems, massive problems with using teacher assessment for accountability, which I've already talked about before, whether that's at the classroom level and using a teacher's assessment to to monitor their own performance, which really, come on, that's madness. I sometimes joke about this. It's like the data you put into the tracking system will affect your pay rise. You go, what? So the more I press this button, the more my money goes up. I mean, I know it's not quite as simple as that, but it sort of feels like that. Go, Why would you do that? Why would you put that regime in place? You're just asking for trouble. But it's the same at national level by saying, oh, we expect the results to be like this and you're going to be compared to national average or whatever. Oh, and by the way, it's a teacher assessment, so you have total control over this. And we know that moderation, you go, oh, well, we were moderated. But what does moderation even mean? We know that there's massive variations in moderation. And I know that it's been improved, but there are still issues. Anecdotally, if you speak to head teachers in different areas, you get, yeah, yeah, you get different messages about this. So, yeah, I think that the whole, I personally think that the primary accountability system is broken because it's over-reliance on teacher assessment. Using assessment in the accountability system is yeah is is clearly problematic as you saw with you know the GCSE results A level results of the last two years oh, yeah. Know, yes yeah that was yeah. just the thing writ large wasn't it and that's the problem you know as, as you're saying Jeremy you know the the incentives all over the place are, are, are difficult so so using teacher assessment for um, uh, for statutory purposes is really really problematic yeah yeah and 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 in I I just think there needs to be a massive overhaul. We, we referred to quite a lot um, the, uh, the report by EDSK, which whether that's the right answer or, or not, where you just scrap the entire primary accountability system and you replace it with more regular online adaptive tests. 
Now we know that you can use sampling. You don't necessarily have to have all children doing all the tests. If you want to have individual measures of schools year on year, then you basically have to have all children doing the tests all the time. Um, but if you just want uh, to monitor national standards, the impact of the curriculum, changes over time, the gap between disadvantaged children, then, then you can just do sampling. I mean, that's another encouraging thing, actually, Ofsted have taken, is that if you remember RAISE, all of the data in RAISE was broken down into every conceivable subgroup of children. And there was pages, pages, 60 pages of data that was broken down to pupil group level. If you look at the IDSR, the Inspection Data Summary Report now, there's nothing on groups unless they only deal with four groups. They only deal with disadvantaged children and low, middle and high prior attainers. Now, those low, middle or high prior attainers are based on key stage one results, which therefore I have a massive problem with. But they're only dealing with those groups and they will only print a statement about those groups. They'll only sort of say that there's something interesting about those groups if their results are significantly different to the school as a whole and the national average and whatever. So they have to meet quite tight criteria. And the chances are those groups are often so small, their confidence intervals are so wide that they have to deviate so far from those averages that that they, they're never highlighted, as never flagged up as being in an issue anyway. So that's, I think, is a, is a good approach. Um, but still, we, if you, I mean, I, I mentioned, I don't know if I've mentioned governors, you know, this is a big thing of mine now. Um, most head teachers will break data down um, and it will be based on teacher assessment. They'll break all this data down into all these different subgroups of pupils. And they'll say, oh, boys are doing better than girls in this subject and girls are doing better than boys in this subject and some are born boys and you know disadvantaged uh middle prior attaining spring born whatever's it's crazy stuff it doesn't mean anything there's a lot less of that isn't there is there's is a part it's just it the is, but it's still and, I and others have done to say you know groups make sense at a national level at a population level but trying to do them in a school schools with small samples and so on so therefore that luckily that is moving forward anyway so the message there is if you are a school leader who's still breaking things down into into groups which have got you know these small numbers then yeah it's you, well just stop doing it it's not it's not going to help you broadly look at the national picture and see if that has any uh, indication for what you might want to do but but looking at the school level doesn't make sense but but even at the sort of the aggregated levels so governors you need to show them something you need to provide them with some indication of standards across the school you know they have a responsibility to monitor this and to challenge you know i, I am a primary school so are you but um but basing that on teacher assessment is really problematic because what, one of the things I joke about this a, a lot is that you, you, there was a target that was going around for quite a while. And it still, it still seems to pop up, the 85% thing, right? 85% of children need to be expected standards. 85% of children need to make expected progress, whatever expected progress is, it doesn't exist. But anyway, so you hear these things all the time. And then sure enough, at the end of year three, 85% of children are expected to working at expected standards. At the end of year four, 85% working at expected standards. At the end of year five, 85% working at expected standards. At the end of year six, 52% meet the expected standard in the tests. Because it's based on a test. And up until that point, you're being sold something that is based on teacher assessment that is being distorted to give a possibly rose-tinted view of things because the teacher is thinking, that's what I've got to show. I've been told that 85% children have got, so therefore, wait, hey, look at that. I press the button and there they are, 85%. Just right. Not too hot, not too cold, just right. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've almost confirmed what I what I thought 
thought, but I'm totally on board, Richard, with the, the ones and zeros, you know, as a way of using that assessment in a, in a meaningful way. It makes, it makes a whole lot of sense. On the other hand, I, I think standardized testing is probably the first um, sort of the first option when it comes to getting a picture of how pupils have done, you know, in terms of their attainment. Is there anything I'm missing? Is there anything we should be worried about? Obviously, Sir Jamie, you've mentioned a few times about standardized testing and not uh, over relying on them. You know, what 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 sort of what do we need to know to get the most from standardized testing in, in schools? Um, well, it, one of the things that concerns me is about the well, for start the the select. How, how did you select the test? Why did you choose that particular test? If you just chose it because everyone else is doing that test, then that's not a good enough reason to choose it. Um, there are budget issues. They cost a lot of money. Um, so are you getting value for money? If you're spending thousands on these things, is that money that you could be spent, that could be spent um, elsewhere? If there is value in them, and I hope that there is value in them, um, there's, there's questions around the uh, administration of the test. So you need to ensure that those tests are being administered in the same way across the school. And if you're, I think if you are um, in a mat, I think it's almost, essential you can't compare all these different schools across a map on the basis of teacher assessment i just don't believe you can just don't believe it works do so you need to use the same tests uh you don't need to do them every term necessarily maybe once a year that can provide you with some information about the standards in each school um that's that's useful um but you need to ensure that they are being administered in a consistent way around about the same time. So you'd have a week, probably a week window when you do them um, and, and uh, administered in under, you know, fairly strict conditions. You can't have one school where they're administering it under strict conditions, another school where they're sat around in groups and copying each other and looking over each other's shoulders. You just, you just can't do that. The other thing that we focus on quite a lot is the, uh, and, and Richard can come in and talk about this, is the question level or item level analysis of the test so uh these the, the test companies provide tools to do this where you 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 mentioned ones and zeros a minute ago you know you all of these questions are boiled down to uh, a one or a zero which you can then put onto a spreadsheet that you can then upload into a, a a system that then shows how your results compare to their their kind of their reference sample or everyone else who took the test and you can see that 22 percent of children got that question right where nationally it's 50 seven percent whatever and that might be a cause for concern but or it might be that you just haven't really focused on that in your curriculum up until that point so that's another thing what people need to make i'll get rich to come in and talk about this people need to understand what the primary purpose of a standardized test is and it's not necessarily to test children's curriculum knowledge because how can it because it's not designed around your curriculum it's to it's to compare children to a national reference sample to see broadly speaking where your children compare or sit within a national population i don't, I don't know if you want to you want to talk more about that richard so there's a number of things to say um so i'll get to that but the first thing i'm going to say is uh, i think it's the, one the, some of the work which we do is to say to people you know they're called standardized tests for a reason the reason why they exist is because um that we now know that uh, it, the answer to the question what distorts testing is pretty much everything everything distorts testing um, so when you do them, how children be prepared, um, you know, who's administering the test, how they administer the test, 
um, time of day, you know, all kinds of different things that, um, affect um, a standardized assessment. So therefore, the, the reason why they call standardized assessment tests, and it's fairly evident, but it's worth repeating, is because you need to standardize a lot of things to try and minimize the bias that will inevitably creep into any assessment. So you do that, so you're trying to, um, uh, you're trying to re remove the bias as much as possible. So that's the first thing. And then, I mean, lots of different, well, you can standardize lots of different tests. Um, you know, you just, if you standardize the administration, standardize the way you mark them and so on. So when we talk about standardized tests, often we're talking about external providers who've done a norm reference test. And again, if you want to know some more detail about what those things mean, it's in our book and you can read up on it. But, you know, you can standardize other ways. You know, I standardize assessments where I standardize whether pupils know um, what the alphabet looks like. So I get them to write lowercase and uppercase letters in a standard way so that I can see if there's a change over time. There's all kinds of standardization that you can do. But if we're talking about kind of a, a standardized assessment where which most people would think about as you're sitting down to do an assessment and to, to take that assessment formally, um, you want to minimize bias. And what you're trying to do is to try and um, use the information from the assessment. So there's a number of things you need to know. Firstly, as Jamie said, the, the test isn't assessing um, what the pupils know. It's not assessing that. That's not what standardized assessments do. They might be aligned to a curriculum, but it's probably not your curriculum, and it may be the national curriculum, but it will be, it's not trying to check um, what you know. And it's worth knowing this, um, and I'll say this so standardish line that I say, if you've got an item on a test, it isn't trying to check whether you know the answer to this question, it's trying to check are you the kind of people who can answer this question correctly? And that's a, it's a key distinction. So that's what it's trying to do. Are you the kind of people who can answer this correctly? And then we can use that information to build a picture to say broadly within the national population, as a result of the answers that you've given on this assessment, at this point, it looks like you're in the middle, you're at the front, you're you know, towards the back. And it, well, that's all it does. And that's, but that's really useful information because you as a teacher have been assessing them you have a view, are they in the middle, at the front or the back? But then you can check against your biases using a standardized assessment, if it's a decent one and it does it well in particular subjects. You can then, as I say, use that to, to use your own biases. As long as you understand that that's what the assessment's doing and that it's not assessing you as a teacher and whether you're any good at your job and whether you're successful and whether you have any self-worth, it's just trying to place the child in a, a, on a continuum and give you some information which hopefully you can then put together with other information to let you know roughly where you know where you should be putting your effort in school. So again, those that's kind of broadly what I'd say with standardized tests. They are really really useful, even though they're, they're limited. We only really can do them in primary schools in uh, in reading and in maths, um, and then in also kind of more general cognitive abilities testing, which is really useful because it still you know can work pretty well. But it's very hard to find a standardized test in history or you know, art, for example. But using the English test and reading test um, can be useful. And if you want to use something like comparative judgment, which is a different discussion, but it gives you a standardized score in writing, that can be really useful because again, as we said earlier on in, the, uh, in this discussion, primary schools, yes, are about reading, writing and adding up. And we wanna know whether you can do those things. We also want to socialize you into school and do lots of other things, but we want to know those things. And standardized assessments can tell you whether pupils, where people sit, fit on a continuum. So the, so the downside to them, uh, and you know, you can look into these, and there's lots of things, few of the last things to say is that yes, there's an aspect of just your general attitude towards test taking as a primary school child. You know, we've all taught, if you're taught in primary schools, you'll know that there are some children in year three, 
year two, year five, year six even, who couldn't give a monkey's about the test and therefore the test might, test might not be particularly reliable. But for a typical child, they can give you some useful results. Also, it does depend on your access, you know, your understanding of, of English um, and the way which tests are written sometimes. So there are some downsides and definitely as long as you're careful about the results you've got, then they can be useful. And again, one of the ways we should say to be careful is if you've got two, three, four years worth of standardized assessments for pupils, you should have a rough idea as to, well, how do these children generally score in a, a reading test or a, or a math test? Is there any change? Is there anything we need to know? So I hope, I don't there's anything else I particularly want to say. There's a whole bunch of stuff. Again, with this whole chapter, Jamie wrote a brilliant chapter with, with loads of questions and answers. So if people are interested, there's a chapter in the book which just covers pretty much all the things you need to know about standardized tests in primary school. One, one of the things I would mention is about how so there's sort of different parts to standardization. You know, there's the standardization of the results, which which converts the raw results into a standardized score. There's the test itself. Obviously, that's just simply in most cases, that's ensuring that all children attempt the same set of questions, which is uh, you think, well, of course. But there are there are cases where that's not happening. So if you do online adaptive tests, that's not happening. They'll, they'll be confronted with different questions according to their ability and their the, the answers they previously gave. Um, the That's fine. Um, so things like GLs, NGRT tests, that, that's, uh, you know, that, that, those are adaptive star assessment. But the other one is children with special educational needs that are working below the age appropriate curriculum are often given a test uh, that was intended for a younger child. So you've got a year five child who's working two or three years below the age appropriate curriculum. So they're given a year two test. Well, it may be that there are questions on that paper that are appropriate and it's useful to see how they attempt those, maybe, but the score means nothing because that's not how standardization works. The standardization of the age appropriate test includes children who are working well below as well as children who are working well above. And that's how you manage to standardize it. There are of course children who can't access it. And for those children, it's, well, it's fine if you wanna get them to do that year two paper, but just, there's not really any point in taking that score, that raw score, even taking the raw score, really. There's no point in that. But then to take that raw score of 22 out of 50 or whatever and convert it into, oh, they got a score of 97. That's just telling you they're broadly in line with, you know, seven-year-olds. I, I, it doesn't really mean anything and it's not really designed uh that's not really how it's designed to work that's the other thing a lot of isn't it jamie because i'll say that again again standardized tests are really useful for assessing those people who are kind of in the middle yeah. of this, but they're not good at the top end and they're not good at the lower end no. but therefore you as a teacher as a school you need to make some decisions about well what are we going to do there because you might want to administer those assessments but if you've got a child who's getting everything right then the assessment may actually not be giving you know might, might not be educationally useful for them equally if a child's really struggling to answer anything then they're going to struggle as well so it is worth considering that i say standard assessments pretty good in the middle the adaptive tests are slightly better but even then for the, the extreme ends of the distribution there's assessments so you, you need yeah. to consider what you're doing with that sorry Jane. no the, the other thing that i'm concerned about is the how the uh how the company that provide the test how they have the, the sample on which they've standardized it. That's another thing that concerns me. So how big is it? How was it selected? Because um, most companies, they, they, they're they quite rigorous, you know, that they will go through a process usually every couple of years 
Uh, they'll contact a bunch of schools. They'll identify children. Uh, they'll build a, a reference sample that is uh, sort of stratified and, and representative and got all the right proportions of children in the right places and what have you. So you know that the results, when you compare your, your results of your children against that, it is a good proxy for the, the sort of the national picture. Um, but I'm not sure that's what all companies are doing. And if it's a case that it may or may not be an issue, but if it's a case that you're just being standard standardized against like all the other schools that chose to buy that company's tests, then that not is not necessarily representative. If they've got thousands of schools, and there probably is, but if it's a smaller number, that it might be that those tests are particularly popular in schools that are um in requires improvement that are in you know more deprived areas or are all in the east of england or whatever you know it might be that they're all geographically clustered in which case then it it, it probably isn't uh nationally representative and the other is the timing so when was it last standardized you know is it a good rigorous standardization process and and it may be that it is a good rigorous standardization process, but if that took place last time that was done was five or six years ago, then things have moved on since then. And then you, you're probably, uh, it, it, it may be kind of exaggerating your performance. It may be flattering you, you know, that things aren't as good as you think. So that's another thing to consider. As I say, most of the popular ones, they're, they're rigorous in how they do this. So I just have concerns that maybe not all, yeah, I mean, you can see the thread going through, you know, because you've spoken quite a bit about accountability. When teachers do see quite often the test results as a reflection, like you say, Richard, of their performance, then you don't get anything, you know, and it, like you said, warps how they go. But you can see that, you know, if we take the approach you guys have outlined, you know, both here and in your in your fantastic book, then you have a better chance, don't you? And, and teachers have a lot less um, personal at stake in in the results of those tests. Because like you said, one of the questions they will quite often ask me is, well, we haven't covered this. Um, and then the conversation we've just had, it, it explains why that's not necessarily important. But when your um, performance management is based on whether or not you've covered that and whether or not they get that question right, it's a, it's a totally different story. So yeah. I mean, that, that's it's really scary to think that there might be teachers that are held to account on the basis of the results of you know, uh, some commercial standardized tests that they've, you know, I, that really worries me. Exactly. And unfortunately, that was kind of built into, into the expectations because of, uh, you know, the, the policies, the educational policies of the mid 2010s. Again, you know, you're expected to have numerical targets in, in teachers' performance yeah. management and so on. And, and you, you were tied to your pupils' results. And that was part of an experiment that was happening in the States and a bit here as well. But I think we have moved beyond, beyond that. And uh, you'd hope that most schools now would recognize that actually that what that does is it just it puts perverse impotences into place and it distorts things. It, it, it's not a, a sensible way to use um, data or to use the information you've got. You know, the, the assessment is all of the child. It is not of the teacher or the teaching. Um, and again, the more you move the assessment away from trying to use it to, as a, some kind of performance management tool, as you say, Jamie, what's your line with this? You can have good data or you can use it for performance management. Yeah, yeah, that's your choice. Yeah, you can have nice, accurate teacher assessment information or you can use performance management and accountability is up to you that's your choice <laughs> and sadly there are schools that still make the wrong choice there um you mentioned targets there i've got a little pithy sort of point of view on this that 
there is only one target in a primary school that's measurable. That's for all children to meet expected standards. So if you want a target, 100%, that's it. You know, and as far as I, you know, I concern as a, I'm concerned as a governor, that's the target. I'm not going to hold anyone to account on that. But the expect, it's not target anyway. It's an expectation. The expectation is that all children meet expected standards. Um, I remember a head teacher telling me this story that um, she said that she used to have this in a, in her school development plan. The first few pages would all be this kind of target setting mumbo jumbo. You know, she would have uh, all these different subjects all the different year groups and all the different year groups broken down into all these different subgroups and then some made up percentage right 78 percent of this group 72 percent of this group 85 percent of this group blah, 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 blah. and she just said in the end she just scrapped it all and she changed it and now it just says she's got this one statement so all children that sit tests will achieve expected standards that's it obviously children who don't sit tests probably pre-key stage they can't do so i like that all children that sit tests will meet expected standards that's the expectation that's embedded across the school. That's what we're working towards. Why do you need targets? 100%. Perfect. Yeah, it's like that conversation about them, um, you know, key stage two tests are across the whole key stage, you know. Okay. So, um, you know, what can you expect to know by October of uh, of year three and that, and that kind of thing, you know? Sort of reset what we science. don't want is everyone being held to account on like, well, why aren't 100% of your children meeting expected standards then? <laughs> There's the, that's the difficult thing, isn't it? Michael Gove and everybody's above average. <laughs> Even if that, yeah, exactly. But yeah. Although in, in theory, all children can be expected standards. It's not norm referenced. Yeah, it's true. Um, and the government, what's going to happen with this, but have set this, this expectation now, 90% by 2030. Working out providing if, useful you know, political um, uh, space yeah. for people over the head with in many years' time. The hilarious thing is, our government that's been in charge for 12 years that has got nowhere near that kind of number has put that target in. But no, that's unfortunate. That again gives you a sense as to, as, the, as I was saying earlier, that education just isn't a political focus at the moment because they do things like that and you realize that that's that's just it's just small people well, big p politics it's not actually anything useful we, we've we've had various factions in charge over the last few years that's the thing it's not one government various yeah. factions are supposedly a party yeah that's unfortunately politicians and, and education uh, a lot of the time you again it's a whole different discussion but yes unfortunately the whole kind of you know, setting targets like that that doesn't make sense I, I think that there was a really good uh, blog post by Data Lab on how achievable the 90% is. And based on previous days, based on like 2019 data, when you look at um, what percentage of children achieve expected standard in at least one subject, you think, oh, right, well, it is, it is doable then. It's doable. But then COVID happened. And now we've, you know, we've dropped back down to, what was it, 59% achieving expected standards in all three this year? You're a million miles away. A couple of times we've mentioned sort of tracking systems. And as far back as I can remember, they've been central in school's approach. Is it possible, and this might be a bit of a loaded question, to have a tracking system that is genuinely useful and doesn't put unfair workload expectations on teachers, just like those we've described across this? All right. Should I kick off with this? Yeah. I, I, I'll be honest. I work for a company that provides tracking system. So I work for Insight. Um, and there is a reason why I work for them. I think that they do have the right approach. Unfortunately, most systems, and understandable under levels, they all were doing it, bet the farm on the progress measure thing, that what we do, what the purpose of a tracking system is to measure how many steps of progress, i.e. sub, sub 
sub-levels or whatever a point of progress is that's what they that's the purpose of a tracking system is to measure how much progress you remain so after levels are removed everyone as you you mentioned earlier they just set about recreating them. that's what they did they just recreated them in a different name some of them just maintain the same I, th I think there was one that just maintained the same point score system but just called the sub-level something else but they called them it, you know year two emerging plus and year three developing minus or whatever but they had the same point scale underneath or even half points this child is on 22.5 points and they need to get to 25 point whatever absolute crazy stuff right and then i had a conversation with a school that was doing exactly this recently and uh and i kind of they had something like um they had like a b c and then a c d and a d all these weird and and i i said to the guy could your teachers tell me if i was to ask them would there be a point in a child's book and say the difference show me the difference you know y2 b slash c and a y2 slash c slash d and he said no what they do is they just they just move them up one point every term so that's what they do they just tick the box up they go um so that's what tracking systems sort of bet the farm on, you know, that they they were, that's what the purpose was. And that's been maintained. I think that the purpose of a so-called tracking system is to store all of your useful information in one place. That's what it's, it's a database where you have access to all that useful contextual information. Richard talks a lot about this, about having not just access to assessment data, attainment results, in my view, but all that rich and useful attendance data and contextual history. Um, uh, results of prior attainment, such as it is, foundation stage, key stage one phonics, all that sort of stuff. Um, any results of standardized tests and teacher assessments, reading ages, CAT scores, I don't know, um, various send specific assessments, there are loads, Yark and I'm going to rattle off a few, Yark and Fab and Boxall and Welcome and Sandwell and Salford and all these different things that teach schools do that are not just focused on uh, reading and maths, but also like well-being and all those sorts of things as well. Any information that you think is useful should be stored in your system and should be readily uh, accessible by anyone who has access to that system. So I don't think you should have bits locked down. Obviously, you can't have governors logging in, but all teachers should have equal access to all that information. So it's not just that the year five teacher sees what the year four uh, teacher said, but has a complete history of everything that went before. So you can see that your, your phrase, which is journey over time. So you can see that journey through school over time, building up that picture, building up. That's what a system needs to do. That means it needs to be really flexible and capable of storing any data in any format. When you put test scores in, the school should be able to set whatever thresholds they like. So if a child got below this percentage or this score, there are X. And if they're between this and this, there are Y. And if they got a score above that, then there is Z. They should be able to store any data in any format, define it in any way they like, make sure that the language and the descriptors and the bandings or whatever they're using reflect what they're using in the school. There should be no cases where they're having to make compromises or we call it this, but the system calls it that. And we just have to do a kind of conversion in our head go yeah, yeah yeah i know it says that but actually what it means is it should be totally flexible customizable and capable of storing all that information um so it becomes a library and that's particularly important we mentioned earlier there are a lot of children that are just fine you don't need vast amounts of information on them but it should be very you certainly therefore should be capable of storing more uh granular 
information on particularly children with special educational needs, provision mapping, um, their learning plans, their individual learning journeys and curriculum and all that sort of thing. So there's a lot that a tracking system can do, and that's something that we're trying to address. But measuring progress is a long way down my list because I don't think that we can measure progress. So the thing that I don't think we can do that I think has been a massive red herring and a massive distraction is what most systems are focused on. Maybe less so now, but I still think that's that's the big deal. Um, that's the kind of the hub on which the wheel is built. And if it, sadly, if you speak to a lot of teachers, you can say, well, I need to be able to measure progress, but you can't measure progress, but you have to measure progress. But how do you measure progress? Define what progress is. If you want to measure something, first of all, you need to define it. Then you need to have a unit of measurement and then you need some way of measuring it. We can't do any of those things. So why, why bother trying? Just have a library of lots of useful information and hopefully that's useful. Yeah, you need an assessment database, which previously would have been called a tracking system. The whole tracking thing ends up with um, people just get into this progress mindset. Uh, and again, the thing which we keep talking about is saying that you need to move away from a progress mindset. That's an external measure that's used by others for, for their own reasons. You need to move away from that to an action mindset, which is basically to say, as a result of the information we've collected, these are the changes we have made or we haven't made. This class is fine. There's nothing that we need to do additional for this class other than they need to be in school, in class, focused learning and our curriculum, which we've worked really hard on, will do the job. But this class, there are five, six children in that class who this is their history. This is the reason why they need to have some changes. So we're changing the curriculum slightly. We're changing the timetable slightly. We're changing the focus of that class slightly because of this. We've made that decision. We make that decision once a year or however often you need to do it. And then we put that decision into place. And then we just keep track of that. And that's what your tracking system is, keeping track of the actions that you've taken. You know, the data which you gathered, the way it's, you know, the analysis which came out of it, the actions that you put in place and that you've got those because the worst thing again is you know if you're a year four teacher you should know which pupils um struggled in you know year one reception you should know what their phonics scores is you those that information should be available to you quickly you should have a broad picture of that class to say is this a class that needs changes to be made or is this a class that we just actually just need to make sure that they're doing the things which we want them to do. So that's that's where we're looking at saying, you, yes, you, you have to gather information. You've got to keep it somewhere. You've got to turn it into an action-based um, fo uh, focus, not a progress focus. If what you're storing isn't having any impact on learning, then what? Then just don't do it. There's no point. And you need to be very clear about what you are going to collect. You need to sit it down as a school workout. Okay, let's collect this information. You need to future-proof that so that you can do that for the next five years, six years, seven years. Because the pupils you're going to have, if you've got a through primary and if you've got uh, seven years of pupils, you need to know that in seven years' time, that year six teacher will have seven years' worth of really decent data. The last thing, again, there's too much chopping and changing in primary schools where, um, in schools generally, where schools do something but while it's only been happening now, or it's ha there's no history. You need the history. So therefore, sit down, work out what you're going to collect, limit that information. So, you, so there's, there's, you're not collecting everything. As I say, you, know, you don't need to collate all the information which teachers have got in their head. But you need to collect certain bits of information. And you need to make sure you agree with what that is. 
and then put it into a database. I've been doing a big project with a map over the last three years, um, putting loads of these things which we put into our, um, our system in place. And it's extraordinary. When you look down at a, at a child in year three and you can say, okay, these are assessments we've got from year one. These are the assessments we've got from year two. Now they're in year three. This is the journey of this child. This is what it looks like in year six. And I'm so looking forward to seeing that database in five years time when it's, we've just got the information that you need, useful information you're gonna act on we're not just gathering loads of stuff that, that nobody is ever going to look at or do anything with, which is what used to happen far too much. One of the things that really worries me uh, is when you speak to a head and they say, well, yeah, the, the, the teachers don't really have anything to do with that. They just like send me all this on a spreadsheet or whatever, and then I upload it into the system and then I use this and I report to governors and whatever. But yeah, the teachers don't need to worry about any of this. I, what we're trying to talk about is... Um, changing the culture around data in schools from one where the teachers view it with suspicion about what are they doing this data to one where they actually view it as a useful tool it's this kind of open source thing um that they they they, they see that there's value in it i, I think all too often that they, they're not seeing that they go well we put some we put some information in i don't know what happens to it and and we need to switch that round we need to change the culture around data in schools to stop this kind of quite it's quite cynical um and and as i say it's therefore prone to manipulation and distortion to to one where it's seen as being a powerful useful tool um and where the 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 emphasis is on accuracy there's there's not going to be any comeback on you we need this to be and and then hopefully we'll start to use that data better and it will become more accurate more reliable and the whole culture around data will shift I've sort of tried to structure these questions around the sort of the key parts of the of the the book, um, without you know give you opportunity to talk about them, but I, without going the whole way, so that people are are basically listening for free to the whole book. Um, but what would your guiding principles for developing an effective approach be? So if you can almost condense what we've discussed into sort of some really clear points for listeners who are ready to sort of up their assessment game. I'm going to jump in there because uh, I, so I, when I work with schools and when we talk about things, um, I, I work with schools to say, you need to think about your data strategically because the information which you gather and you collate and you analyze, it should underpin a load of things which you're doing in school. Yes, you're developing a great curriculum and yes, you're, you know, supporting pupils in their, um, in their development as, as, um, as people, but, but you, you need information and you need to gather that information and it needs to underpin what you need to do. And if you think about it strategically, because it, it, it will help you in all, all, um, uh, features of what you're doing in the school. So the first thing you need to do is sit down and say, okay, what do we want from our, our data? Um, in, and I often talk about in one year, three years, 10 years, what will this look like in 10 years time? Um, and again, that's always a useful question for a lot of um, uh, people in school because 10 years is quite a long time and people don't tend to think in 10 year chunks, but it's worth thinking about well, what this looked like in 10 years time because if it's, if, it's, if it's worth doing, it should last that length of time at least. But I say, sit down with a data strategy, work out where you are um, and then work out how you're gonna change what you're doing um, I say, if you're still in a bit of a progress focus, if you've ended up with that, if you're using your tracking system to effectively track what you think teachers are teaching or what teachers might have guessed children are able to do, because you've got a huge range of um, uh, criteria that you're using, you're tracking that information, move away from that, move away from that progress tracking, move away from that, using the data 
to keep track of your teachers, um, move into an action focus to say, okay, what we're going to then do is think about um, pupils who are fine, know who they are, and pupils who are not fine, people who are not fine, what are we actually doing about that? And how do we keep that information um, current so that we in the school understand the challenges um, for a class, for a cohort, for a key stage, and for the school as a whole? If you're a mat as well, you can also then look at the different challenges across the different schools you've got. Because some schools, you know, the, the, their challenges are, are, are quite um, quite significant. They, they're quite, there's a lot of things that you need to think about. But for other schools, it's more straightforward. You can actually do much less with your data and spend much less time on your data. So that over time, you should be maximizing your, your use of the data, but minimizing the effort which you take on the data so that you can spend more time doing the things which you actually want to focus on. So broadly, that's why I'd say, uh, again, thinking about I say, a strategic approach to it and trying to set up a system such that in five, 10 years time, you're not doing a lot. You're just, the system is running itself. I would, uh, in terms of the practicalities, um, teachers are no doubt going to be recording uh, some kind of overall assessment, um, whatever form that, that is, uh, try to avoid some recreation of levels. Um, but you're basically recording uh, whether that child is, you know, fine or, you know, high or low or whatever um, in reading, writing and maths. Uh, most schools are doing that termly. Question whether you need to do it termly, maybe twice a year. I don't know. But uh, whatever is useful um, in reading, writing and maths anyway. In foundation subjects, I mean, what can you really record? Whether the child is on track or not. That's it. Probably once a year. You know, so you really don't need much information on that at all. It's worth recording if you're using your system to uh, produce parent reports, which is something that, you know, systems can do. That's one that's one good function of a system. If all your data is in that one place, then you can use that system and you can also record in the system the commentary that teachers are making about child's learning. Then you can compile that all into a parent report. Something that Insight does quite well. Um, and then uh, so therefore you probably want to record effort grades as well. So, or effort or attitude to learning. I don't know what you want to call that, um, but maybe something on behavior. I don't know, but if that's what's important and that's what you report to parents, then you probably want to record all that in there as well. Uh, think about using a standardized test. It doesn't need to be every term necessarily, but maybe at the end of year, just as something to kind of shore up teacher assessment or validate teacher assessment or something to balance it and check it. You know, that's, that's a, a useful thing to do in reading and in maths. But make sure that you can also, uh, you know, record all those inf all those sort of assessments uh, relating to children with send. Okay, so those will often be in the form of scores and reading ages. Uh, that's all fine. The one thing I really want schools to think about, I'm um, looking at primary schools here. This is not a secondary thing. Is the checking off of these learning statements, these learning objectives, uh, which is still rife. This kind of digital APP, um, which has just sort of gone mad. And I'm not quite sure why it happened. Um, I think there's something around uh, the levels of confidence around assessment that for some reason you, you need, rather than being able to make this overall assessment of a child's position, they're, they're learning in maths, you need to have it broken down into all these different like subsets, these increments, and you go, oh, they, they're, they're working at greater depth in that one, and they're meeting that one, and they're working below in that one. The risk of that is it does turn into a progress thing, where like you get extra points the more boxes you tick, 
which is really worrying. The other thing is there are systems out there that take how many boxes you've ticked, uh, work out what percentage of the total number of objects there are that um, there are, and, and, and then change that into some kind of convert that into some kind of auto grade. So the system is calculated based on some flaky, and it's usually like, have they achieved 33% of their objectives by Christmas? Like, why 33%? Well, if you take 100%, divide by three terms, 33%. We go, oh, yeah, so that's how your curriculum is designed and delivered in all year groups and all subjects, is it? No. But so there are loads of concerns around, you know, why schools are doing that. That's a, a, that's a big focus. I would say the majority of primary schools are still doing that. They don't like to admit it, but it's a huge workload issue as well. Um, so Solomon Kingsnorth did a really good blog on this and he gave the example of if you have 30 learning objectives for 30 children that's 900 assessments times three subjects 2700 assessments do it three times a year that's 8100 assessments you're going to have to record in a system now that's probably you know uh, over exaggerating it maybe because you're not going to be doing each of those um, each term but in some cases you might be but don't even but that that's just for like say year three or whatever but foundation stage 17 early learning goals broken down into all these developmental statements it's crazy i i multiplied that up for one school once it came to forty five thousand six hundred records and no one's going to do that so what you're going to do is you're just going to block fill it and we know that's what they do in reality they just wait till the end of term select all and just yeah they're all done those in which case what's the point so i i think that's something that schools really need to look at and they need to ask themselves, are you just going through the motions here? Is there any value in doing this? Is it is it possible that this is not really telling teachers anything they didn't already know because it's based on what they knew in the first place? There's no way that a teacher can tick off all these things, look away, look back and go, oh, I didn't know that. So why do it? So that's something I really want schools to think about. And we talk about that in the book a lot as well. I think that's solid advice. And I love, Richard, you're talking about 10 years time. You know, very rarely do we ever get to see things the whole way through to completion, you know, but I think where a head teacher goes in and they have a 10 year mindset, you know, things get done and things get done properly, you know, because, you know, you don't change things overnight. Rome wasn't built in a day and we've just finished a five year project. And at the end of the five years, supporting these teachers in their math teaching, you know, they now do not need anyone to support them because they are they're the experts now, if that makes sense. And, and I wish that happened more often, you know, so it's great to hear you talk about that there. And my own, my youngest is in reception. And I'm just thinking about his school report now and whether or not he was just you know, <laughs> every box, you know, at the end of the year, let's, let's take all of it. <laughs> so maybe do some assessment on him when he gets home today. <laughs> <laughs> so just to sort of round off, um, got this sort of policy influence and fantasy question. If you were schools minister, because it might be your turn next very, very soon, who knows, you know, is there a list? Um, and no you had um, uh, ambitions at this stage. <laughs> <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> that's only that's like having the back end of your of your board as if as a football manager. You know, by the next Monday you're gone. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, full, yeah, exactly. I love that full back. <laughs> um, so if you're your school's minister, you've got a mandate change assessment for the better. What's your plan of what's your plan of action? Well, I'm going to jump in here because, again, it's something which I've, I wrote a piece about this last year because I was I was just looking at things and just, again, it's really interesting. Lots of change comes because people people come up with ideas and suggest them to the government. They take them on. Um, in primary, there just hasn't been that much discussion about assessment um, 
uh, in the last you know, while. There's a really good report by um, Tom Richmond at EDSK, which Jamie mentioned earlier, and again, people should look for that, which talks, you know, about primary assessment and how we might move forward. And he, he puts forward an interesting model, um, which, as Jamie said, is kind of a rolling assessment model, which you, you do as you move through. My th thought is just, is just the way which we've, we, the way which we've changed. As Jamie said, there's a lot of assessment in primary now. Um, but with the reason why we've got a lot of assessment is because, um, so in two cases, so the phonics screening check was brought in basically as a policy, policy nudge to ensure that schools were, were teaching phonics in a particular way. Um, the multi multiplication um, uh, check, uh, screening check has also been put in place. Um, and that's been put in place in year four, again, for a similar kind of reason to ensure that people, teachers have, so, so assessments are being used in that way, which is interesting. Um, so that's one thing. The second thing is that we've then, um, uh, we've dealt with the fact that there was a problem at key stage one, because if we used assessments at key stage one, it distorted things. So we've taken that away, we're taking it away. And we put in place this um, reception baseline assessment, which is problematic in all kinds of ways, but at the same time, it's a number because the government just wants a number at the beginning and a number at the end. So it's created a number. So when I had a good look at it, I thought, well, actually, you know, so at the moment we've got this big key stage two assessment um, system that's just basically designed to create a number that can be used you know, at the beginning of to, to, to measure from a government point of view and from a government point of view, measuring a, a progress across primary schools, whilst it's problematic, that's what they do. That's what they want to do. And they're probably not going to want to stop wanting to do that. So they've got a number to do the end stage of key stage of, of primary and the beginning stage of, of secondary. So the logical extension of that is to say, well, if you put a, a, a reception baseline assessment in, why don't we put a key stage two baseline assessment in and do something similar, get an iPad, create some questions, give it to your 11 year olds and say, here you go, push these buttons for 20 minutes and, uh, and then that will produce a number. Nobody knows what that number is except the government um, wonks who will then use that to, to say whether you've made much progress through primary schools. And actually I think that's, there's a lot of benefit that can come from that from a government point of view, because then they get rid of all the distortion at key stage two and they, they move something, they, they move on. So I think that would be worth investigating because if you, all you want is a number at the end of Key Stage 2, which is largely what you want to do that. Of course, the reason why we have the assessments at Key Stage 2 is because we do want pupils to, to, to be able to read and to write and so on. But I think there's something to be said for, for take, from a statutory point of view for taking away that um, a distortion that we've got at the moment. But I'm also very aware, as ever, that uh, Sam Friedman's very good with this, um, who, again, those people who read Sam Friedman, saying you need to be very aware of unintended consequences. Any changes that you make may just cause more chaos. And so therefore, yes, the system which we have is flawed, but if you're gonna put something else in place, you need to be certain that it's not gonna create more chaos. So I don't know, so I think it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one. But if I was looking for an interesting thing, I would say, yeah, let's just do a, let's just do a year six baseline assessment. That's my view. What do you think, Jamie? Have you got any? Uh, yeah, so when you say year six baseline assessment. Well, baseline for secondary, or like a year six. So why not do it at the beginning of year seven? Or, or even better, do it at the beginning of year seven. Exactly, yeah. Take it out of primary and schools. I, I do think that statutory assessment in, it's been kind of implemented in such a piecemeal kind of way. It's like stuff getting bolted on all the time. I think it's got to the point now it's just kind of got out of hand there's so many assessment points it's just madness and i do like the the you're right there, there'll be unintended consequences no doubt and that needs to be looked at but i do like the 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 is, is a certain elegance to the proposed um uh, solution in that edsk report you have online adaptive tests hmm. 
uh, sort of um, English and maths uh, every couple of years, uh, it does mean that you'd need to think about whether you're going to have a baseline, a reception baseline as well, um, and whether that could be done. Because there was actually a, an iPad based one, wasn't there? Yeah. When when we originally had this round of the, the, these the multiple provider approach, it was doomed to failure. Everyone knew it would fail, and they went ahead with anyone. You could select your provider, and the vast majority just selected one, and and then there were just a few others, just sort of, you know, other schools were just like fighting over the other providers were fighting over scraps, really. Yeah. Um, but then one of them was, I think it was GL had a had a, a sort of an iPad based approach. But uh, I, I do like the idea that you have regular but fairly low stakes assessment that, that you don't have to have all children corralled you don't have to have them all do it at the same time you could have five do it on one day and then another five do it on another you know it can be it can fit in better with the sort of day-to-day -day sort of runnings of a classroom um i like that idea other other countries i think they said was it wales are going down this route yeah. australia have denmark so a few other countries that have done this so maybe every two years you do a um a, a, some kind of uh, online adaptive assessment which includes uh, they, they said they include reference questions so you have the same question repeated every year so that you can then measure standards over time i like that i think if we were to keep hmm, i i really like the idea of sampling mm, um, we have sampling for science mm. uh i don't know do, do we really need um all all children assessed all of the time every every year i guess in the current system we have we can't see past it that's how it's built every child in the end of year six is assessed and then we have these school measures and that's why i think we need to take a really big look at and this would be my number one my big ticket item was we need to take a really hard look at the performance at the, the performance tables the the influence of the performance tables and what that's doing to education i'm not anti-accountability uh, i think that the performance tables are badly presented I think there should be some kind of contextual summary of a school before they even get into any data. But where you get to this landing page and it's got these minus 1.8, well below. And, and no one knows, well, the intended audience, there aren't that many people that know what minus 1.8 means. Okay. So they ignore the minus 1.8 and they just see red and they see well below. So they don't understand about the issues between reading and writing and about writing being based on teacher assessment. They don't understand how the how children with SEND that are working below that don't sit tests that are still included in these measures by being assigned basically a made up score according to their pre-key stage assessment, how that will can massively impact. Um, if you've got a, 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 a resource base uh, unit in your school for children with SEND, how that's included, not excluded, that's included in your results, all of this stuff. You know, that th there's so many problems, so many structural problems with the way that these measures are calculated. Uh, and I really, I, I know there are some people who want uh, performance tables to remain. I don't think there are many teachers that do. I think you, I think the world would be a better place without them on balance. I think the world would be a better place if we move towards sampling, um, sample testing rather than universal testing. Um, that does though cause a problem. If you were to do that, it does cause a problem for, Secondary, if you're going to have a progress eight measure, uh, because you need every child to have. So that means they'd have to have some kind of online. Sorry, they'd have to have an entry assessment in secondary, which I don't think they'd be against anyway, because loads of secondary schools have a problem with key stage two sats and that being used. Thinking out loud here. I quite like the idea of not have, having a question bank of key stage two test questions rather than having the papers available online. Mm -hmm. 
I think you need to do, if we're going to maintain this current system, I think something needs to be done about the amount of test practice that goes on. Um, and having a question bank so you can you can practice questions, but you don't know how you can, it's that adding them up and then creating a scaled score and then saying, oh, this child got 97, they just need three more to get to a, I think that's all worrying. There's also systems stuff that I would change. So we currently have this absolute mess where you've got a primary assessment gateway that doesn't really work very well. And uh, and we've got a tables checking website and we've got a, a performance tables and we've got ASP and we've got the IDSR and they're all in different bloody places. Um, and, uh, and, and, and for some reason, we still, schools still submit their foundation stage and phonics and key stage one results to local authorities. Why, why isn't everything just done through this primary assessment gateway? Everything uploaded to it, downloaded from it, viewed on it, everything, everything done on there. Maybe that's where they're heading, but that really needs to be solved. How many passwords do they have to? Anyway, yep. that's, that's a by the by. But that, well, it's not by the by. It's important, actually. I, I, yeah. Get rid of performance tables, sample testing, and sort the primary assessment gateway out. Okay, and then I'm going to say the last thing. So, so assuming that the uh, the school's minister, um, current school minister, is listening, and the education secretary is listening now, and future ones are listening now, which they they, they will be. The first, the well, one key thing to say, as Laura McInerney will say to you very regularly, remember, you're in your position because you were successful in the exams which you did. So you're the kind of person who is successful in exams. So, so you, your, your approach and your experience of taking any kind of assessment is very different from a lot of pupils. A lot of pupils find the exam stressful and difficult. We know that mental health awareness and understanding and just the acceptance that, that actually, you know, that for mental health, health is quite fragile. Um, uh, and we know that much more so. So you need to think about um, the effect and the impact of assessing pupils who are not successful in assessments. Now, again, at, at GCSE, A-level, those pupils are 16, 18, you know, they're growing towards being adults. But assessing an eight-year-old is a different thing. And an, an eight-year-old's sense of self and sense of, um, you know, everything about them is, is still developing. So, and you need to be very careful because assessment, it's fine if you're successful. And loads of people who teach and uh, say education ministers are successful people. But remember, a lot of people um, are not going to be at the top end of the distribution. They're going to be lower down. And therefore, you need to be a little bit more sensitive about the way you manage these things, particularly in primary school, particularly with, you know, these are young pupils, they're young children. Um, so so just have some awareness of the fact that these are little people. Yeah, I mean, that's a brilliant way to round that off. I mean, I wish that teachers were a big enough voting part of the, the voting population to actually, because you guys would win no problem on a, on a joint ticket with that, uh, with that manifesto, because everything you're describing would make conditions and the accuracy of what we hope to do much, much better, you know? So I hope that one day we were in that we exist in a world where that is the, that is the case. And when we're, we're not spending, you know, our half terms selecting all and uh, <laughs> picking boxes. <laughs> you know, we've all been there. Um, <laughs> and I mean, it, it's, it's wonderful chatting to you guys. I mean, whenever I have these conversations, I'm always, where to my depth and I know that everyone listening will find this extremely useful um, and if you know if we can change one senior leader's mind about how they go about things in school then you know that, that'd be fin absolutely fantastic you know data proofing your school goes into what we've discussed in much greater depth and it actually has a section at the end that helps schools to put their own plan 
together, which I think is really, really important. So they can take the book and the, the and the message and act on it. Like I say, I bought it for three of my school leaders. You know, as you were saying to start, get it for your school leaders, get it for your governors, so that the conversations you're having are, are much more um, enlightened and you know working towards that utopia that we've that we've described. Yes, all, all that just said, thank you very much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks. Well, for thank you very much for your time. time.